David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. So, uh, some time ago I came up with this idea uh, with Rabbi Groner that we would do a, we'll do a little two-part prior to Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah is a festival that we're all kind of superficially familiar with. Uh, but very rarely do we get the opportunity to get to grips with the nitty-gritty detail behind it. Because, and here I'm going to say something that will be in agreement with some of you, will scandalise other, and others if you won't even care. But, there is a bit of a misunderstanding generally in relation to the festival of Hanukkah. I'm saying this is a prelude to what I'm going to talk about tonight. Because it's totally a new opportunity for me to go into something that I'm really excited about. I'm not taking for granted that you're going to get excited about it. But we're going to see. Because normally, you know, I deal with these big spans of history. And tonight I'm going to go into detail, detail on just a very, very small slice of history. Because this misunderstanding about Hanukkah is quite widespread. Most people seem to think that the miracle of Hanukkah that we celebrate is the fact that the oil that the Hasmoneans found in the temple was only enough for one day in the rededication of the temple, but lasted for eight days until they could make new oil. And that is the miracle. And there's no doubt that as miracles go, that's a miracle. But it's not necessarily a miracle that you're going to establish a whole festival eight days in the Jewish calendar and that several thousand years later we are still keeping. That's a miracle. It's not the real miracle of Hanukkah. The real miracle of Hanukkah is actually a physical miracle which is the victories militarily. The military victories attained by the Maccabees and by the Hasmoneans over a vastly superior army and force in the, in the form of the Seleucid Empire. That's the key. And so what I want to do, because so rarely do we get this opportunity, and you're all sitting here and not going anywhere for the next little while, so I'm going to take this opportunity to go into some detail and indulge myself in one of my own pet loves within history. Everybody has the things they like about history, and I've got a few pet loves about history, and one of them is, of course, military history. Some of you will have heard me say before that I would I fantasize about giving a series just on famous battles in history because they are so famous and here we have an opportunity to talk about something that is really pretty much about military victories so in advance I'm warning you that we're going to be doing a little bit of military analysis some of you might like that and those of you don't I urge you to find it interesting because it's an idea behind it what really emerges from the Hasmoneans is its fundamental idea. Make no mistake about this. The war of the Hasmoneans against the Seleucids 
all of those terms will explain, is the first real, really recorded conflict in, his, in world history that is fought over the idea of religious freedom. Many people had fought before wars of territory, wars of religion, but no one had really fought a war for the right to observe their religion and to observe their faith and to observe their traditional customs and one. So we're going to look into that. It's a very, very underspoken aspect of it, especially uh, outside of Israel. And so it's an opportunity. All right, so I'm going to start speeding up now. I think most people have come in. So we have to, first of all, put ourselves in the context of the time that we're going to talk about if we're going to dive deep into a certain very, very small part of history. And so just so that there's no confusion, and I don't want to assume any knowledge on behalf of the audience, let's look at when we are talking about. This two-part series I have neatly called Priests and Princes, Power and Politics. So when are we talking about? So I'm going to draw this line here. And that's us over here. That's approximately the year 2000. I'm using the secular dating. Yeah? And let's call this minus 2000. So we whack a zero in the middle. All right? So that's basically the span of Jewish history. So here's 1000. Here's 500. Here's minus 1000. Here's minus 500. Minus 1500. 1500. So, just spend a minute to make sure people who uh, who've been to my talks before should be familiar with this. Minus 500 to zero, approximately. I mean, Jewish history is divided up into these discrete 500-year epochs. And what is that? Two and a half thousand to two thousand years ago is a period in Jewish history that is known as Beit Sheni, the Second Temple. Gives me nachas. Right? This is the second temple. So let's zoom in. Let's zoom in. Those of you who are, want some orientation. Yeah? So this is the Talmudic period. This is the biblical period. The Bible ends here. Yeah? There's the destruction of the temple. There's the Babylonian exile. There they come back to rebuild the temple. And this is the period of the second temple which is finished by the Romans here. So let's call this minus 500. Let's call this zero. Yeah, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. And now we're zooming in. We're going to zoom into this century between minus 200 and minus 100. And in order to understand what's going on in that century, we need to spend a minute on what's been going on in that century, obviously. And what's been going on then? Well, to cut it very short, because we don't have too much time to spend on it, even though it's an entire subject in itself. Basically, as you know, as you know, so I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Here, in around minus 330, 
I need another board, uh, is of course, everybody knows what that is? Yeah, that's the Mediterranean, right? There's Spain, Italy, Greece, Turkey, the land of Israel, Egypt, North Africa, Babylon, etc. Right? So in minus 3.30, an amazing uh, energetic, new energetic force, military, social, uh, philosophical, cultural, bursts out of uh, Greece, effectively, with this new idea of Hellenizing the world, with the new outlook of the Greeks and their thought revolution and their military revolution, and Alexander the Great thinks it's a good idea to conquer the world. And over the course of a couple of decades, he does just that, and he basically conquers everything, all the way to India almost. But he dies. He dies in his early 30s. And as a result of that, his conquests are divided up. They're divided up by his leading generals who are themselves very powerful, influential men. And they divide up his conquests. They are called the Diadochi. This is all world history. This is all well known to you. What really, really matters for our purpose is what happens here. Because at this point, there's no real diaspora to speak of. Uh, there's a bit of a community still here in Babylon already, still from the, from the Babylonian exile of a couple of centuries earlier, but there isn't really any significance. This, this is the Jewish world. It's still in the land of Israel. The term Yehudi doesn't just mean Jew. It means someone who lives in Yehud, which was the province that was in the land of Israel under the Persian Empire. Having conquered the Persian Empire and having conquered just about the whole of the known world, Alexander's successors in dividing it up took for themselves kingdoms and huge territories. For our purpose, the main ones are a kingdom that was seized by Ptolemy one of Alexander's generals, in Egypt. This is all happening here in the last, in the dying arrays of the 3rd century BCE. And he says, oh, I'll have that, thank you very much, and starts the Ptolemaic dynasty. And another general called Seleucus says, oh, well, I'll have that, thank you very much, and starts the Seleucid dynasty. Both of these dynasties are Hellenic in nature. That means they are taking Greek cultural ideas, Greek thought, Greek politics. And remember that Alexander's teacher was Aristotle, and Aristotle had written extensively on politics and his idea, the Greeks' ideals of the ideal society. And a human being was defined as someone that lives in a polis. Often paraphrased as Aristotle's remark that man is a political animal. What he means is that a human being is a citizen of a state, and a state is a polis, and the ideal state is about 5,000 men, 
and associated things like women, and they would be, they would form their own city-state, a political entity in which they would participate. And so both of these dynasties are interested in setting up different policies around the new areas of their conquest. That, for example, sorts out the founding of Alexandria there, uh, Antioch up here, and many of these famous cities of the ancient world that started as small Greek policies in the light of Alexander's conquests. It's very important to realize that Hellenism was a startling new cultural idea in the world. And the Greeks, as you know, they were into art, they were into literature, they were very much into aesthetics, they were into sport in very, very refined ways. They did have religions, they did have gods, but they also had had a rationalist thought revolution where they regarded themselves as pretty much at the apex of where human beings had arrived. And they had very, very firm ideas about what human beings should be doing with their time. It is the first time we almost see in world culture, almost, this idea of secularism. The Greeks were not so concerned with what religion you chose to follow. Everybody follows a religion. Well, you've got your religion, I've got mine. What was key was that you participated in political society and you contributed and had all the benefits of that. Now, during about, as I said, they're not strictly Greeks here, they're Hellenic-based dynasties, started by Alexander's former generals. For this whole century, the land of Israel, which, as I said, is the predominant abode of the entire Jewish world, is undergoing a succession of wars between these two dynasties. That succession of wars that happens right throughout this century, the minus 200s, is its own subject in Jewish history. It is massively important. And during that period, and once again, we're not really talking about this right now, but during this period, we can see that the Jewish world is starting to syncretize with some elements of Hellenistic thinking. The spiritual sages of the Jewish people at the time did not necessarily see Hellenism as a bad thing. It was a cultural idea in the world that they could work with so long as it didn't conflict with Judaism. You want to use your mind, you want to learn mathematics, you want to work out in the gymnasium, that's all fine so long as you're still keeping Shabbat and not bowing down to idols and circumcising your sons and basically being loyal to the foundational ideas of the Torah. But even more than that, some groups within Jewish society were using new Hellenistic principles to employ, employing those principles in the service of Torah itself. So we start to see things like systems emerging on how the Torah can be interpreted, 
don't know if you've ever looked at the Bible, but it hasn't got a lot of systems going on there. But the Greeks were very much into systems and building up ideas on broad and then narrower principles. And of course, famously, famously emerging from this century of the Hellenistic influence between these two dynasties is of course, because most of this century, most of this century, we are actually in the control of the Ptolemaic dynasty. And of course, what emerged from the Ptolemaic dynasty here is of course, the most famous cultural document of Hellenistic Judaism, which is of course, the Septuagint, the translation of the Torah into Greek. We take for granted now that, ah, oh, translations exist. You know, I'll go down the shop, I'll buy my copy of Art Scroll. But this is a radical idea in Jewish, uh, in Jewish thought and in Jewish culture, that the Torah can be taken and translated to another language. That then propelled entire sections of the Jewish world that were going to grow up not really even knowing Hebrew. They were going to read the Torah, they were going to read the Bible in Greek, and especially in new centers like Alexandria, which started to have extremely large Jewish populations. The Ptolemies overall were fairly kindly disposed to the Jews. They didn't have a major problem with the Jews. And in fact, even the Seleucids didn't when they had control of Israel during most of this century. All right? All of this is just backgrounding to what we're going to talk about tonight. By the end of the century, the land of Israel, this province of Yehud, as the Persians had called it, and the Greeks had more or less taken that over, except that they, weren't, uh, they were seeing it more in terms of the potential for Greek city-states. By the end of this century, the land of Israel was pretty much firmly in the grasp of the Seleucid Empire, because the Seleucid ruler from from around minus 220 right up to around 187 was a very, very influential and powerful emperor. And his name was Antiochus III. Now Antiochus III was... on the whole, quite good to the Jews. He realized the importance of placating the Jewish population in Judea because they were a buffer between him and Egypt, but also because Antiochus had other things on his plate and he had other concerns. And without a doubt, his biggest concern was a new superpower that was beginning to dawn. And that, of course, was Rome. And in his struggle with Rome, Antiochus had allied himself with figures like Hannibal and so on. And throughout this, he became an enemy of Rome. The Seleucid Empire was at war with Rome until the famous Battle of Thermopylae, of 199 in the Battle of Magnesia, in which the Romans went geschmeis, and they said to Antiochus III, here's how far 
we will allow the Seleucid Empire to expand and no further. And not only that, you are going to pay us a lot of money just for us to let you exist. So even though he was the emperor over a vast territory, by the time you get into this century, he's almost doing that only at the allowance of the newly resurgent uh, Roman Republic. It's not an empire yet, Rome. It's a republic. And we're going to come back more onto that later. It's very important to realize that in the background of all the events we're going to talk about tonight, Rome is coming up on the rise. Of course, when the Romans made that treaty with him, which was kind of like a, a treaty of Versailles, if I can use that, when they imposed that on Antiochus III, in the ancient world, when they did that sort of thing, they didn't just gather around in the United Nations and sign some papers, right? There were some serious things that you had to do. And one of the things that Antiochus III had to do was he had to give something important as hostage to the Romans and that if he didn't behave according to the pact that the Romans had imposed on him, they would kill the hostage and not just any hostage, but his eldest son. So his eldest son, who is going to eventually become Antiochus IV, spent much of his formative years in Rome as a hostage at the pleasure of the Romans while his daddy ran around and gathered the money that he had to pay to the Romans for the war reparations. Everybody follow that so far? So that can affect your psyche, all right, when you're given by dad as hostage to the Romans. During this period, Antiochus III realizes even more important how important it is to keep the Jews happy. Because all that was needed was an excuse for Rome to get into Egypt and up through the Levant into the Seleucid Empire. And so he enacted a series of decrees that were aligned with traditionalist elements in Jewish society, particularly the priests who ran the temple. Antiochus III decreed that unclean animals were not allowed into Jerusalem at all. He decreed that Gentiles could only go in certain places in the temple and had to be extremely respectful. He himself sent numerous sacrifices and donations to the temple in Jerusalem. He was a supporter of the temple. Whereas Antiochus was spending a lot of time running around his empire robbing temples in order to pay the Romans, he basically left the temple in Jerusalem alone. He respected it and he respected the wishes of the local population. However, we've also seen that in the course of these decades in Jerusalem, there is growing inside that local population what can only be described as a Hellenizing faction. There were Jews who said, well, actually, you know, it's very nice of you to make those decrees, but we're not actually that from. We are, we're not that religious. We're actually quite happy to be more Hellenistic. And those are growing as a political and cultural influence inside the Jewish population as well, as a result of the fact that many aspects of Hellenic culture are very, were very attractive to young Jewish men and women. 
187, minus 187, because I need to move on, otherwise we won't have time to look at all the stuff we've got to look at. Antiochus dies. He dies in northern Iran. He's raiding a temple. He gets killed. And then it's not immediately Antiochus IV that comes back from Rome. There are quite a few intervening years uh, where uh, a king called Seleucus is on the throne. And during Seleucus's time, he's starting to pull back a little from his dad's attitude towards the Jews because he actually is starting to think, well, maybe we should be encouraging these Hellenizing factions inside Jerusalem and inside Judea because they're actually going to be more on our side when the chips fall. And he even sends, famously in a famous episode, he sends one of his top public servants, Heliodorus, to Jerusalem to take funds from the temple treasury. Heliodorus is stopped. He has to go back. And then in around 175... We need to cut this story short because it's fast. that period is fascinating, but it's not what we're talking about tonight. But in around minus 175, Seleucus' reign is over and Antiochus' son, Antiochus, now Antiochus IV, has returned from Rome and has seized control of the Seleucid Empire. And Antiochus is a very hardcore Hellenist. At first, he's not going to forcibly impose Hellenism. But he does encourage greatly the Hellenistic factions inside Judea. Now, what ultimately does that mean? It all comes down to the center of religious power in Judah. And what was the center of religious power in Judea at the time? It was the temple. Therefore, and the priesthood. Therefore, the office of high priest is an extremely critical one in terms of the population's entire cultural being. And we had had a series of quite significant high priests who were respected by the population. But what we now get in the 170s is a high priest who was a Kohen, he was a priest, he was a from a priestly family, he was a brother of the previous high priest, except that he didn't go by his Hebrew name, he is known as Jason. We have a high priest called Jason. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, we laugh at that, right? But today we've got rabbis called, you know, Chris, and <laughs> maybe not Chris, but you know what I mean. So, Jason is a Hellenizer, and, but he's also a priest, so the population is still going, well, okay, except he builds a Hellenistic gymnasium in Jerusalem in order to appease the Seleucid rulers. This gymnasium becomes very popular, as all authors of the time attest to. You know what was happening. For some reason in those days, men enjoyed hanging out in the gymnasium, basically socialising, playing sports all day, running around, flexing their, their pecs, and all of that in the nude. Now I'm here to tell you that when you're hanging out in the nude in Hellenistic times as a man, 
it's kind of clear who and what you might be. And so quite a number of these men were undergoing an operation that I'm not going to talk about much, which was a reversal of circumcision. That was something that's noted by a lot of the authors. A lot of young Jewish men were going through this operation. No one, I'm not quite sure how it happened, but I know that it hurt. And then were beginning to adopt other kinds of Hellenistic mannerisms. Obviously, as they become more Hellenistic and secular, so the more traditionalist factions become more and more traditional to counter that. And then, at one point, in around 171, Jason sends some money to Antiochus IV, and he sends it via a public official, not a priest, but a public official whose name is Menelaus. I mean, all these Homeric heroes are suddenly appearing in Jerusalem. And Menelaus says to Antiochus IV, why don't you make me high priest? I'll do X, Y, or Z, and I'll send more money, and I'll do this, and I'll do that. So Antiochus appoints him as high priest. This then sends, obviously, the traditionals into complete overload. And over the course of the next few years, more and more Hellenizing is happening. Now, in 168, and this is a critical year, in minus 168, Antiochus takes his army to whoop some Ptolemaic butt. And he gets as far as Alexandria and he has a bit of a success and he comes again. And then the Romans intervene. They don't want him to take Egypt and they say to him, you're not going to take Egypt. This is as far as you go. And he's pretty annoyed. On his way back, because rumours had spread that Antiochus IV had been killed, the Jews go into a bit of a revolt. Jason tries to get back into Jerusalem with a thousand guys. Things are chaotic. Antiochus IV has got a lot of pent up anger. He comes in. And he raids the temple and slaughters thousands of people in Jerusalem. And in the course of which, hanging around for a bit, he sets up in Jerusalem a building, a big building, kind of like a citadel building, which we know as the Acre. Sometimes spelled with a C, sometimes with a K. I'm spelling it with a K, K so we can see. Obviously not spelled in English. Now the Acre... Just as a footnote to that, we're not a thousand percent sure where the Accra was. Those of you who are familiar with the old city and just outside the old city, as you head down towards Silwan, there's a car park called the Givati Car Park. And they have done excavations in the car park and they have found what they think is the basis of the Accra. So it was somewhere there. But it was a very, very central spot in ancient Jerusalem. And in this, Antiochus placed an entire garrison of Seleucid soldiers. And they were joined by a whole lot of Hellenists who were hanging out there. There's this massive Hellenistic eyesore of imperial power sitting smack in Jerusalem. That's a very important part of our story. Antiochus goes back to Antioch and to run the Seleucid Empire and leaves in charge a series of governors who are charged with imposing Hellenism on the people. Wasn't 
South. Yeah. Was on the south. You might be thinking of a later Roman structure that was on the north, but the the Seleucidacra was definitely on the south. I'm not entirely sure we're on the south. Now, during the course of this imposition of Hellenism on the local population, Antiochus went further than any Hellenistic ruler had ever gone in relation to a local population because he effectively tried to eradicate Judaism in a series of decrees. The first decree, of course, was that Jews were not allowed to circumcise their sons on pain of death. Jews were not allowed to have any public observance of the Sabbath. All Torah scrolls were to be burnt. This was a project of cultural genocide. It wasn't a physical elimination unless you broke the law. It was an attempt to rid Judah, Judah of its indigenous spirituality. Obviously, the Hellenistic parties were varied in their approach to this. Some didn't like it because they said, well, we still want to cling to some traditionalisms and others were all for it. Others, such as Menelaus, were extreme Hellenists. In other words, okay, so we're worshipping the God of Israel in the temple in Jerusalem, but we just call him the God of Israel. We can just as equally call him Zeus. And, you know, we're bringing sacrifices of cow, uh, you know, cows and sheep. Well, they don't have to be cows and sheep because a pig's a perfectly good animal. So we get to a point where they are actually offering pigs to Zeus Olympus in the temple in Jerusalem. Now that wasn't cool as far as the traditionalists were concerned. And many, many of the traditionalist priests left Jerusalem at this point and went back to their homes of origin. One important family that did that went and lived in the town of Modi'in. Here's Jerusalem, so here's Modi'in. Modi'in is not far there. Modi'in is not far from where Modi'in is today. And just about everybody who's been to Israel has been probably through or near Modi'in at some point. And his name, of course, was Matityahu, or Mattathias in English. Not Matthew, but Matityahu. And Matityahu came from an ancient priestly clan which were known as the Hasmoneans. We're not entirely sure of where they got that name from. What is interesting, if you write that in Hebrew, there's, a, um, the, the, there's, a, the, there's an interesting allusion here to Hanukkah because you've got Chet, which equals eight, and Shemin, which equals oil. But the name Hasmonean had been around for a while. They were part of a Hasmonean family. And he had five sons. He had five sons. Yehuda, Elazar, Yohanan, Shimon, and Yonatan. And they also had some sisters. And in fact, it was this. Now, uh, the really crucial episode that we're told, and there are various, various historical sources that we know about a lot of this material. Um, 
Some of it is legendary and some of it is hardcore fact because it's corroborated in different accounts. We have the Book of Maccabees, we have Josephus, we have the Talmud, we have some Seleucid sources. But we do understand that at some point in around about the year minus 167, uh, a local governor, a Seleucid governor, Hellenistic governor, as part of this cultural oppression, came to Modi'in and asked the local priest who was Matityahu to sacrifice an unclean animal to one of the Greek gods. And Matityahu refused. When he refused, another gentleman from the town who was of a different disposition, a Hellenist, came forward and said, oh, I'll do it. And as he went to do it, Matityahu ran forward and killed him and then turned around and killed the governor and then basically got the entire village involved and they killed that entire small contingent of Greek soldiers, that, of Hellenistic soldiers that had come, Seleucid soldiers that had come with them. That sort of thing immediately obviously marked Matityo and his family as outlaws and they fled to the hills. That is the beginning of a rebellion that is going to change the world. That is the background to the beginning of the Hasmonean Rebellion. But so far, even if we look at a couple of months after that, we've got Matityahu and his five sons hanging out in the hills, gradually collecting followers who are willing to think about rebelling against probably the most powerful empire in the world at the time, and how were they going to do that? And there's only about a couple of hundred of them. During the course of that first year, Matityahu dies. He never actually sees the full rebellion. He dies while they're still living in the hills. And the leadership of this small new rebel movement falls to his son Yehuda, Judah, who went on to take on the name of Judah Maccabee. And Maccabee once again, we're not entirely sure of what that word is referring to. It could be referring to the concept of a hammer. It can also be an acronym for Mikamocha Baelim Hashem, who is like you among the mighty, O God. There's different ideas, but he very soon became known as Judah Maccabee. And, you know, sometimes, because everything I've said to now is really just a prelude to what I really want to talk about tonight. But sometimes we, we, we talk about Hanukkah and we talk about Judah Maccabee. Oh, yes, it's almost like, you know, like a Jewish Santa because Hanukkah appears around Christmas, so is Judah Maccabee coming down the chimney? He's going to give us presents and so on. And we completely overlook the fact that Yehuda Maccabee is one, if you had to pick maybe five of the greatest, most revolutionary military commanders in history, he would be there. His entire approach to warfare and military tactics changed the world from this little force that was running around the Judean hills. He realized that if you're going to take on the Seleucid Empire, you have to get very, very serious very fast. You have no resources. You have hardly any men and you are taking on an enormous force in order to liberate your country and preserve freedom of worship. And therefore, it is 
highly instructive to look in detail at the next couple of years of exactly how he did that. Because as I said at the beginning of the talk, that's the miracle of Hanukkah. So the first thing he does, yes, ma'am. He started with about 200 after a few weeks, but even at the end of the first year, he only had about 600. But I'm going to get to that because it's very, the numbers are very important. The first thing Yehuda Maccabee does, for a year, they don't do anything except two things. And the first thing they do, and it's almost like when you read the career of Yehuda Maccabi, you are reading a manual on guerrilla warfare. You know, just last week, Fidel Castro died, right? And Che Guevara and these guys, they thought that they were inventing guerrilla warfare. But when you look at the career of Yehuda Maccabi, they knew nothing compared to what Yehuda Maccabi, he invented the entire idea. The first thing you do, and I'll even write this on the board because it's so fascinating as a program. And don't forget that everything, all of these battles and, and, and struggles I'm going to talk about have not only been written up over the centuries in history, but have been studied in recent decades and analysed very, very extensively by Israeli military tacticians and historians. There is an entire program of how you go from a small, dedicated group of people to a national rebellion. And the first thing you need, what's the first thing you need? You're right, but that's actually going to be number two. Not yet. Sorry? Higher up. Not even that. That's good, that's good, but that's going to come. You're not even at that level yet. Oh, so that's extremely important. But the first thing you're going to need, the first thing you need. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, where's the squidgy? Intelligence. Now, it's interesting you said a higher idea, because what's going to become evident is that there's a very, very important thing that's going to come into play called morale, right? And that is an actual idea that you'd have worked on, but in the first instance, they did nothing for an entire year but gather intelligence. That is, they created a network of spies and scouts right throughout the land of Israel that would report to them on all movements and behaviours of the Seleucid authorities and their troops and their military mechanisms. Are they included in the 200 initial or that's external to the core 200? So the core 200 plus... Plus a, few, uh, plus a few key people in different places. But even by the end of the year, his fighting force was only 600. Did they go out into the populace? Yes, so, so they went into the populace. Now, while they were doing that, while they were gathering intelligence, they were also carrying out a kind of quasi-terror uh, project because they were going into little Jewish settlements forcibly circumcising children, uh, killing Hellenists. So they were creating a bit of a name for themselves. They weren't making it a secret that they were running this network. And after about a year, without having engaged any Seleucid forces, they more or less had control of just about all the territory where 
outside the military centers and certainly in the hills. Now, here's where it's going to get technical. Here's where it's going to get technical because I need to divert because I need to discuss what it was that Yehuda Maccabi, his conclusions and his realizations as a result of this year in intelligence. And in order to do that, we have to look at the way the Seleucid military worked. The Seleucid military, which by the way, was an evolution, it's only a century later, of the entire military structure of Alexander the Great, who had conquered the world. So it's the same military technology, is based on the idea of the phalanx. And the phalanx... is an idea where basically it's a huge square of soldiers and they move in formation. This square can be up to 5,000, 10,000 strong and they move in formation and they are all armed with these long either lances, Javelins. I mean, later in history, they would call them pikes, like a maybe seven or eight foot long metal bar with a, a sharp point at the end. Now, <laughs> it's very important to understand this point. I mean, the Seleucids had their own way in which they constructed phalanxes. There were 16 by 16 was your most basic core unit. They're about 250, then four of those joined together to create a phalanx of a thousand, and then two of those would be about your smallest phalanx that you'd go on a journey with anywhere, and then might, you might have two or three of those moving in formation. Why was the phalanx so successful? Because, on the one hand, it's an extremely tough thing to attack, and it's amazingly good at defending. But also, Here's a really key point. The Seleucids ruled over a vast area. How do you conquer and maintain a vast area? You do that because after you conquer it, you give your soldiers, according to their rank, property. And they settle that property. And you basically leave them to live their life on that property and farm it and do what they want, so long as they have a basic allegiance. And when you need them to fight a war for you, they are there for you. And not just them, but their sons. So already we're 20 or 30 years deep into this. So you've already got guys who've never seen wars, but they know that when the Seleucid Empire needs them. So you need to develop a fighting strategy and a military formation that will suit guys who aren't used to fighting. These are not professional soldiers. Most of them are farmers. They're loyal to a point. They're not going to fight for anyone else, but they're not professional soldiers. You need a formation that's going to work for them. And the phalanx formation is ideal. So on the outer rims of the phalanx, you might have a few fancy themselves for, up for, for a bit of a fight types. But most of the phalanx is composed of guys who are holding a spear and are prepared to use it if they have to, but would rather not if they can get away with it. And most of the time they don't because most of the enemies of the Seleucid Empire, when they saw a phalanx coming towards them, ran. 
the big difference between them and subsequently the Romans is that the Romans were successful precisely because they used professional armies. All their soldiers were professionals. But that's not how the Seleucid Empire was run. Yet the Seleucid Empire, apart from their encounter with Rome, had never really been defeated. The phalanx was an incredibly successful military resource. And what Yehuda realised was that it's not just about intelligence. He ha- if he's going to take there's no way that a few hundred guys could even begin to think about taking on even one phalanx. Unless they worked to the weakness of the phalanx and their own strength. And what is the weakness of the phalanx? The weakness of the phalanx is the fact that these guys were amazing in formation, but did, could not do hand-to-hand combat. They might be deadly from eight feet away when packed together, but once you got in there, they did not have hand-to-hand combat. Yehuda Maccabi spent that year not only gathering intelligence, but training. This is the real origin of Krav Maga. This is the origin of an entirely unique form of hand-to-hand combat, but not just. It was a different type of hand-to-hand combat that he developed. It was not a stand-your-ground boxing kung fu type of thing, right? It was more along the lines of run, strike, run. It was run, hit, run. It was constantly moving. It was con- and they worked on this. And the other thing, the other thing, so, one, so it's a new form of fighting, a new form of fighting. This is the brilliance of it. He hadn't even fought anything yet. And he worked this out. And the other big thing he got them to do in training was fitness. He'd have them running up and down these hills. Now, who's been to Israel? We've all been to Israel, right? Most of us have been to Israel. So when you look around the classic biblical landscapes, what are you seeing? Especially in the hills of Judea. So these guys that with Yehuda Maccabi became incredibly fit. It wasn't just the case, like the guys in the phalanx could march for 30 miles holding these heavy poles, but that's a very different type of fitness from running up a hill. And the other thing is that Yehuda Maccabi realized that his own weakness could be a tremendous strength. What was his weakness? His weakness was they had no base. They had no permanent solid thing to defend and that became a tremendous strength because they could vanish. There was no one place. They didn't have to worry about defending anything. They were able to pour their resources 100% into attack. All of these things were realized by Yehuda Maccabi at the same time that he was working at all the Seleucid troop movements and so on. Now, because, however, they were harassing little individual points, the word got back to Antiochus, of course, and the uh, Seleucids decided that they would act. I cannot believe it. I cannot believe it. I'm looking at your watch, and I've just seen the time. Oh, thank God. Right. No, that would be horrendous.
Okay, we're still, we're still, we're, 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 we still have to speed up because otherwise we won't make it. I've got about eight battles I want to do with you because I've got to show, but we'll get there, all right? Because at the end of this year, at the end of this year, yes, this particular year, um, they send, they decide that they will send a force. It's almost like a patrol. It's only 2,000 men that the Seleucids send in phalanx formation. And it becomes the first engagement. What prompted that engagement is actually shrouded itself in legend. According to some traditions that the Jewish people have, it was actually prompted by women. Because it was prompted by the fact that the Hellenistic government, the Hellenic governors were coming along and having their uh, rites of conjugation with Jewish brides. You know, the famous thing, the night before the wedding, they would take them and have their way with them. And this noblesse oblige that they were forcing themselves on the population. And uh, Jewish women were going to Yehuda Maccabi and his brothers and saying, how can you stand by and let this happen? So there are all sorts of acute moments why it particularly happened in that particular time. But round about 166 is the first engagement at what we know is now the name of the place is Ma'ale Levona. And that is north. That is north of Jerusalem because this was the governor of Samaria, Apollonius, and he made his way down and he was going to sort out these Hasmoneans. He was going to sort out this rebel riffraff. He was going to show them who the Seleucid Empire was. And they sent a phalanx of 2,000 men. Now, there are various ways, and they were going to join up with the forces that were in the garrison in the Acre in Jerusalem. So they were making their way to Jerusalem. And it's very important that you realize this, because there are several ways in which you can access Jerusalem. This particular way was from the north, where it just begins to rise up into the Judean hills from the north. That's Ma'ale Levona. And that is where Yehuda Maccabi made the first engagement with Seleucid forces, using the terrain to some extent, but most importantly using the hit and run hand-to-hand -hand combat that he and 600 soldiers had developed. They did not have, they hardly had any weapons. When this engagement, when Ma'ale Levona happened, Juna Maccabee did not even have a sword. They were using wooden arrows, and stones in slingshots but it was like they were moving in so fast and out so fast as this uh, phalanx was trying to go up the hill it was like being cut by a thousand bees and there was one other military tactic that Yehuda emphasized and was brilliant at and that is as well as all that if you're going to attack a phalanx as a guerrilla skirmish, there's one thing you've got to do. First, go straight for the head. Go straight for the head. So the first thing, first of all, they cut, the, here's, here's, here's this phalanx coming into the pass, right? So Yehuda actually divided his force up into four parts. This has been extensively analysed. I mean, I was, I was just reading an account a couple of days ago by uh, an Israeli general who was looking at this going, whoa. Uh, um, and you basically, four parts. 
your phalanx is coming here the phalanx is notoriously weak at the sides right you block off the exit right remember in these hit and run things so there's confusion they don't know what's happening that then falls back uh, these guys keep going forward so they run into the retreating front thing and as that happens the two sets only 150 guys on each side run down pelting throwing moving fast and what is your inclination if you're in the phalanx and you're being attacked is your inclination after this has happened several times is to chase after the people that you are that are doing this to you but as soon as you chase after them you lose the phalanx formation and you can be picked off one by one and of course that phalanx formation was actually composed of two phalanx formations with apollonius in the middle and judah bringing up the rear was able to get to apollonius very quickly killed him personally and took his sword the sword of apollonius from the battle of maale levona was the sword that judah maccabee used to the end of his life and they wiped out the entire garrison they wiped out that entire phalanx that then obviously spent sent you know the seleucid authorities spectacular and so Antiochus sends double the force 4000 and they were engaged by Yehuda Maccabee at possibly the most famous of all of the Hasmonean engagements at the battle of anyone know this very good who said that excellent at the battle of Bet Horon now amazingly who knows what Bet Horon is when you come into Jerusalem from Modi'in yeah that you and you're accessing the Judean hills that way so you're coming in from the coast and you're coming in that way there are two ways to go basically even today you either go via Modi'in and through Bet Horon and up that way and come to Jerusalem from the north or you go up what is today when you take the bus from Tel Aviv you go through Shar Haggai right so just as you're about to go that's Shar Haggai that's the other way they came through from Bet Horon by the way that is Bet, that Bet Horon Pass is not just made famous by Judah the Maccabee. It was, of course, made famous a couple of centuries later in the Judean revolt against Rome when they wiped out the legion, uh, the 12th legion of Cestius Gallus. It was also made famous in the 20th century because that was the, ro- the route that uh, Allenby took when he went up to Jerusalem. But the Seleucids come into Bet Horon and it's now that Yehuda shows his real brilliance because they really really use the terrain by now he's got a thousand men so it's a thousand against four thousand and this time this particular phalanx which was led by a general Seleucid general called Seron uh, all of these battles have been extensively analyzed but the short of it is is that they utilize the fact that the uh, rift in the in the, between the hills that the phalanx had to go through completely distorted the shape of the phalanx so at various points it had to be elongated and those were regarded as the weak points and once again using the weapons that they already had from the Ma'ale Levona they were able to actually inflict damage much harder but it was still hit and run run hit and run get in amongst the lances and as soon as you are two to three deep in the phalanx you find that all you have to do is strike hand-to-hand combat and get out immediately get out they couldn't they didn't know where they were being hit from in little groups of twos and threes they would attack the phalanx and retreat attack and retreat there was nowhere for the phalanx to go except to lose formation and once they lose formation they're gone that which destroyed 
the 4,000 phalanx at Bet Horon, one of the most famous battles, and that's when the Seleucids realized they had a serious problem on their hand. And so <laughs> Antiochus sends his top general, Lysias. Lysias is actually told, I want you to go to Judea. I want you to wipe the bastards out. You kill everyone. You destroy their religion. You transplant them with another people. I don't want to hear any more about it, says Antiochus. By the way, Antiochus, who called himself Antiochus Epiphanes because he thought he was divinely enlightened and was famously known as Antiochus Epimanes, which means the mad one, the insane. I mean, he did have insane moments. But he picks, and Lysias takes with him three other generals. And this is the famous battle, which is unbelievable. The battle at Emmaus. Now, Emmaus, Emmaus is well it's about here and what happens is <laughs> 10,000 Seleucid soldiers so they come to Emmaus and they set up a camp and they fortify it they know where Yehuda is Yehuda is stationed with his 3,000 soldiers by this point now we're in 165 3,000 soldiers at Michmash a few miles away and so Gorgias who is the general in charge of the Seleucid forces he takes 5,000 Seleucid soldiers about half his company and he heads towards Yehuda's camp fortunately Yehuda had intelligence of this he had guys posted he knew the Seleucid's movements so he knew they were coming towards him and this is the really, really brilliant thing about Yehuda Maccabi. Because he learnt to think like his enemy thinks. What is the enemy expecting Yehuda Maccabi to do? If he, if he knows he's got 5,000 Seleucids, and by now we're talking about a higher level of soldier, He's got 5,000 coming towards his base camp. What is... And Gorgias gets there with his 5,000 men and Yehuda's vanished. Right? Where's he gone? Into the hills. That's what you're going to think, right? And in fact, Yehuda leaves campfires so that there would, from a distance, it would look like there were a lot of guys still there. And he left a force of 200 guys who were given the instruction that when you see Gorgias's 5,000 men coming towards you, when you know that they can see you, run into the hills. So when Gorgias arrives, he thinks those 200 that are running into the hills are just the stragglers from Yehuda's entire force running into the hills. So Gorgias takes his 5,000 guys and he goes into the hills because that's how the Maccabeans work. They're hiding in the hills. We're going to fan out and we're going to pick them off. But that's not what Yehuda actually did. What Yehuda actually did was he took his 3,000 guys and he went to Emmaus. He went to the base camp of the Seleucids and camped right next to it and on this occasion, because he's fighting a fort now, it's a very, very different type of fighting. So this time he has to divide his army up into classical formations. So he divides them up into 1,150 units of 10. 
and they're also very very under resourced still so each unit of 10 was basically responsible for finding a weapon for killing a certain number of soldiers and 1500 of your soldiers were at the back of the fort the it's a very complex battle and we don't have time to go into it but uh, and 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 the cities had actually set up a phalanx they still had 5,000 guys back at the fort, so they set up a phalanx out the front. And while Yehuda's main army was engaging the phalanx out the front in more classical style, although still with guerrilla attrition, uh, actually due to a misunderstanding, the 1,500 guys at the back of the fort thought that that was their time that they had to jump the fort. But what happened in the end was an ensuing tremendous panic and in the end a tremendous victory. This is already beginning of 164. And then the big victory at Betzur. Because at Betzur, which is south of Jerusalem, Lysias came back and he said, I'm not going to play into their hands. I'm going to bypass the whole of Israel. I'm going to come down here and I'm going to go up from the south. Right? Obviously, Yehuda is aware of this. His intelligence network tells him exactly what's happening. And so they come to Betzur, and this is a big force. This is a big force. This is already dealing up, up almost up to 20,000 citizen soldiers, and they're coming up. And once again, a battle that's been very extensively analyzed, basically north of Hebron, uh, and once again, uh, utilizing the formations of the hills, using the actual geography to hit, run, disappear, hit, run, disappear, cause the Seleucids. It didn't matter to Yehuda Maccabi that it would take longer, but he knew at the end there was only one result. He had to win. And so at, at, by the time they even got within five miles of Jerusalem, Lysias' casualties were so significant that he basically uh, withdrew. That was a tremendous victory. That was the victory just prior to Yehuda and his brothers going up to Jerusalem and rededicating the temple. It was the Battle of Betzur that was the final battle before what we now know as the big Hanukkah event of the rededication of the temple. Bear in mind the rededication of the temple and all of that is by no means the end of the military story it's still going because as they are lighting those that menorah the Accra is still there filled with a Seleucid garrison and a whole bunch of Hellenists it's an extremely tense situation Yehuda sieges the Accra but he can't attack it. He doesn't have those sorts of resources. He has not developed that style of fighting. So they try and ignore it. They try and cut off the supply lines from the Accra. But the Accra is able to get messages in and out. And they eventually call for more. And for, they plea Antiochus. Now Antiochus by this stage has already got his own problems. Because he's dead. <laughs> Antiochus has died just prior, but he has been obviously replaced uh, by a new series of empires and in fact emperors. And in fact, the Seleucid is going to, empire is going to go into a period of instability that's going to work in the favor of the Hasmoneans. 
but eventually it is Lysias himself who is pretty much in charge because he's the regent for the next king who's only nine and he comes he comes this time and they still cannot believe that this rebellion is going and that they have defeated everything that the Seleucid Empire has thrown at them because Yehuda Maccabi's flexibility of thinking his ability to adapt to the different conditions has been amazing but this time Lysias comes with an enormous army of 40,000 plus cavalry plus something that the Maccabeans have never even seen before no one in the land of Israel has really seen before he brings elephants now an elephant is a phenomenal weapon in the ancient world not only is it massive and strong but it's high gives you huge height advantage. It, an elephant is unstoppable. I mean, it is effectively the ancient world's equivalent of a tank, but like a 15-foot a, a tall tank. That's and they had dozens of these elephants that were slowly making their way through these valleys. And Lysias knew. He knew the um, tactics of Yehuda. So what he was doing this time was sending forward flanks up on the hills to make sure that the Maccabees and the Hasmonean uh, rebellion army would not be able to uh, outflank them or use the hills in any kind of weapon way. This was a very demoralizing sight for the Maccabeans, a very demoralizing sight. It was in fact, famously, and you know this, Yehuda's brother, Elazar, in a phenomenally brave, but also stupid, but brave thing to do, to attempt to demonstrate to his fellow soldiers that these elephants were not invincible. He ran at one of them, found one that looked like it was the main elephant. It had the royal symbols on it. There was a, Indians were on, actually had Indians on top of them, driving them, right? And he got underneath it. This is how amazing they were. You know, as he's able to penetrate a phalanx, get to an elephant and roll underneath it and slam a spear into the elephant's belly, killing the elephant. But of course, the elephant fell on him. I mean, we laugh, but it was actually tragic. Fell on him and crushed him and killed him. He was the first of the Hasmonean brothers to die and he died underneath an elephant and about an act of bravery that was you know spoken about for years and years in the end that battle the battle of bed zacharia that happened at bed zacharia which is a bit further up the road it was the same tactic Lysias tried the same tactic but it's a little bit further north bit further closer to jerusalem that was their first loss that was their first loss then the Seleucids decided that they would try and impose their own high priest. So now they've regained control of Jerusalem. There was a garrison, a Jewish garrison stationed at the temple to protect it from any further incursions uh, and defilements. But the Seleucids were having none of it and they wanted to impose their own high priest and they chose a guy called Akimus in Hebrew, Yehoiakim, and he was going to be the high priest. And uh, that, of course, was not acceptable to the traditionalists, to the Hashmonaim, to this group called the Hasidim who had joined them. And uh, 
at this point also, and I, I need just to take a minute out because it's, it, by the time we get to a couple of years after the Hanukkah events, once we get to 162, 161, we are already starting to see the erosion of something that extreme, was extremely important to the Hasmoneans, which you highlighted before, the concept of morale. One of the things that Yehuda had realized was that the Seleucid soldiers were not really fighting for anything. The Jewish soldiers were. The Jewish soldiers were fighting for their own existence, for their own land, for their own country, for their own freedom. And there are many, many famous speeches recorded in the book of Maccabees and in Josephus and so on, in which Yehuda Maccabee aroused his army, whatever size it was, to an understanding of this level of morale. But after the events of Hanukkah, once basically the Greeks had agreed to a level of religious autonomy, and so there was still a lot of Hellenistic influence, but they, were no, they had agreed they were no longer going to defile the temple, and they were going, no longer going to really try and eradicate Judaism. A lot of the fight went out. This is one of the reasons why Yehuda found it difficult to get the required numbers to fight at Bet-Zachariah and at the other battle that eventually they lost. But in 161, uh, Yehuda... Uh, attempted one further push on Jerusalem to get rid of the garrison out of the Acre, and therefore they sent uh, the big general Nicanor, and Nicanor came down and once again, amazingly and stupidly, decided to take on Judah's army at Bet Horon, this time much in large numbers, and once again, Yehuda, in one last amazing battle, the Battle of Hadassah, the Battle of Adasa uh, defeated Nicanor's army. That was a serious miracle because Nicanor was a top general with a huge army and once again said, I'm not going to try these classical formations that don't work. We're going to go back to where we started. We're going to go back to our roots. We're going to hand-to-hand -hand combat. We're going to guerrilla warfare. We're going to run, strike, run. We've now much more resourced. We've got weapons. And they wiped out about 9,000 Seleucid soldiers at the Battle of Adasa. And that is regarded pretty much as the definitive moment at which the Seleucids realized that from here on, there wasn't going to be much they could do about the Hasmonean revolt, except that they did send one more force because... And of course, at Adasa, they went back to the classic idea of killing the commander first, and they killed Nicanor. Nicanor, the general, was the first to die in that battle. They, and they cut off his head, and they cut off his hands, and they hung them up in Jerusalem as a kind of morale boost for the Jews, as you do. But then they came back, we've nearly finished, and they came back, and in the Battle of Elasa, uh, that is where they forced the Hasmoneans onto the open plain, Judah had found it very difficult to raise the numbers that he needed. Uh, most of his fellow soldiers left when they saw this massive array, and he was only left with 800 soldiers. They begged him not to fight. They said, let's just go into the hills and fight another day. But Judah said, I can't send that message. We've gone too far now. We can't start retreating. And uh, he threw himself with a few other soldiers uh, into the phalanx and did not survive. That was the death of Judah Maccabee. I think by that time he'd fought so many battles that his mindset had changed. He just couldn't uh, 
think we can't go back to where we were five years ago. Uh, this is a do or die stuff. Although, due to political issues that were happening elsewhere in the Seleucid Empire, that force went away. And Judah's successor, so Judah was, Judah's successor was his brother, Jonathan. Jonathan. And Jonathan is going to be a ruler over really the first kind of uh, independent Hasmonean state. It's not quite there yet, except that Alexander Balas, who was one of the uh, pretenders to the Seleucid throne, offers if he offers Jonathan that if he will ally himself with Alexander Balas, he will give him the high priesthood. And Jonathan is the first of the Hasmoneans to take on the role of Kohen Gadol, of high priest as well as the leader of the rebellion, as well as the quasi-civil leader of this new, not quite yet, Hasmonean state. It is still a vassal entity of the Seleucid Empire. They still has not got rid of the Akra. Yonatan rules over Israel for 20 years. During that time, they still have not got rid of the Akra. In 147, they have one great, big, last military confrontation with the Seleucids. And the Seleucids throw at them a force that's immense and they won't fight in the hills. They say, you come down to the plain. It was near the coast. And they set up a base at Yafo. And then they took thousands of soldiers into the plain and they waited for the Maccabees to come out and of course Yonatan does not engage them in the plain. Yonatan just like he takes a leaf out of his brother's book and goes and completely destroys Yafo where they had set up their base camp and then they brought these thousands. It's called the Battle of Azotus and what's interesting about you thinking ah oh, where is Azotus? Anyone know where Azotus is? That is the Greek name for Ashdod. And that was the last military. And using, once again, Yonatan rallying the people of Israel, he actually managed to get together 10 or 15,000 people who were prepared for one last great big battle against the Seleucids. And in the Battle of Azotus, they actually using, to the extent that they could, the guerrilla tactics of hit and run and hand-to-hand -hand combat, they defeated the Seleucids. And after that, it was more or less quiet, except that Yonatan himself was killed by Trifon, who is a, was a Greek general. He basically tricked him, deceived him in the most awful way, uh, told him to, by now Jonathan had an army of 40,000 guys. He said, don't worry about your army, just come here, we'll work out a peace contract. Jonathan does that, he believes him, he goes and meets him in Nako to work out a peace contract, and Trifon uh, kills him. That left Shimon, the other brother, to become uh, the leader of the Hasmonean state and as well as high priest. And it is Shimon who says enough is enough with this Acre already. And he just goes in there with a huge force into Jerusalem and demolishes the Acre brick by brick. The Hellenists definitively lost. He also basically flicks the forks 
at the Seleucid Empire and says to them, I can be your friend or not, uh, but uh, I'm not going to pay you any more tax. We are going to mint our own coins. And the Seleucids agreed. Why did the Seleucids agree? Because one of the amazing things that Yehuda Maccabi had done, apart from everything else in revolutionizing warfare, learning from his mistakes. Remember, also he'd learned from his mistakes here and tried to correct them. One of the most amazing things that he did in 161, he made a treaty with Rome. He made a treaty. He sent guys to Rome. The first recording we have of any Jews in Rome was a delegation sent there by Yehuda Maccabi to make a pact with Rome. So that whatever Hasmonean state would ensue from this struggle will be recognized by Rome. The Seleucids refused to recognize them. But by the time you get to Shimon, they agree to Shimon's terms because they know that if they don't, Shimon will go straight to the Romans and make an alliance with them. So, so long as you are prepared to act as a buffer state for us, we will allow you to be fully independent. And so from around 138 onwards, Judah and they actually even tell Shimon that he is allowed to call himself prince and start a royal dynasty. He's not king, but he's kind of like a tetrarch prince. And he's high priest. This then begins an entirely new form for the Jewish people. The idea of a leader who is a priest, a warrior and a king. But it is from that moment that the completely independent Hasmonean state exists. The Hasmoneans then go about instituting a festival called Hanukkah. Hanukkah was to celebrate the victories and the military miracles that had brought about through the hand of God. They saw this totally as being the hand of God that they had been able very, very few soldiers in number had been able to overcome such a vast military empire. Interestingly enough, it could be, it has been posited that the eight candles on the Hanukkah kind of might represent the eight battles that they fought. But even that not being the case, it's generally recognized the Talmud speaks about the legend of the candles. And uh, quite a number of people have come along and said, well, we're not sure exactly when that happened or how it happened or if it happened that way or whether that's a, a later interpolation of Chazal. But even if it is exactly as Chazal in the Talmud, the sages in the Talmud said it was, it's still recognized as not the main miracle. It's a manifestation of the miracle. But the main miracle is the way in which uh, I've been able to remember all this. And the main miracle is that um, the overall military uh, victory, which has never really uh, been surpassed. I mean, uh, it is no wonder, obviously, that the, much of the symbolism of the state of Israel uh, which is the next really kind of successful military, uh, because even, I mean, look, the, the, the Zealot rebellion against Rome in the first century failed, ultimately. Bar Kokhba's rebellion in the second century ultimately failed. 
Um, what we're going to look at next week, we're not going to look at military stuff next week. We're going to look at politics next week. We're going to look at what happened to the Hasmoneans after they were firmly established. In 134, Shimon is betrayed by a member of his own family and is killed. All, these, all the Hasmoneans met tragic endings, all of them. And they're all buried in Modi'in. But after Shimon, when Shimon died, we entered into a new phase of the Hasmonean state. It was a phase where we were contemporary with the collapse of the Seleucid Empire. We actually began to become a powerful independent kingdom in the Middle East. Beginning with Shimon's son, John Hyrcanus, Yohanan Hyrcanus, and going right through, basically, we'll be looking at the next hundred years about how that evolved right up until the rise of Herod, who is kind of the last gasp of the Hasmonean <coughs> concept. So when we, just to finish off, when we, when we look at the Hanukkah candles and when we think about what that means, we are not just commemorating something we are experiencing a living monument. The connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is eternal. And when the Jewish people seek to fulfill their purpose in the land of Israel, and when the Jewish people understand that ultimately all power and all strength and all military conquests come from the divine, and that against all forms of oppression, uh, the divine is always on the side of freedom and on the side of uh, righteousness. And that was the idea that motivated the Maccabees and allowed Judah Maccabee to develop an entirely different way of fighting. This perception that the world has that Jews don't know anything about fighting or about wars, which of course has changed somewhat in the last few decades due to the nature of uh, the IDF, but uh, it's very, very much not the case when you go into history. It's not just the case that Judah Maccabee was a cool military commander. He was one of the most fundamentally revolutionary thinkers in the whole of military history who virtually single-handedly invented guerrilla, successful guerrilla fighting. Uh, in order to establish this state. So I hope that you'll come, some of you will come back next week and we'll look at the exciting levels at which uh, that then uh, deconstructs. Sir John Monash was brilliant, but he was, he had, Sir John, yeah, but you, here's, here's a slight difference. I'm a big fan of Sir John Monash, but Sir John Monash is like a brilliant Australian general who happened to be a Jew. Whereas Yehuda Maccabi is seen in an entirely different form. He is, first and foremost, a Jew who is fighting for his Jewishness. The Seleucids were going to eradicate Judaism. If they had not done this, we would not be sitting in this Chabad house tonight, I can tell you. We would be in some kind of, you know. And that is why, that is why the Christians make a big deal about it as well. Because they would never have come into being. The whole of the continuum of the Judeo-Christian world evolves from these events, from the rejection of Hellenism. And it wasn't the power of parts of Hellenism. I mean, the rabbis are probably not big fans of running around in the nude in the gymnasium. Uh, but, but, 
you know, maybe even that has its place on its day, but it was the coercion of the eradication of the idea of freedom of belief, of the freedom to believe in one God that guides the universe and has ethical and moral demands on human beings. That is the key behind Hanukkah and the miracle of Hanukkah and what the lights represent when we see them. And that's why that victory was so everlasting. There you go. I know that... I know I got a bit technical tonight, but I do thank you for indulging me. I've never actually had the chance to really talk in detail about this before, and it's very exciting. There are many, many good, those of you who are interested in this material, there's a lot of good literature on in military history, and especially, as I said, some Israeli generals of the military academies in Israel have sat down, have poured over these battles, and you can go there today. You can go to these places today and you can go, oh, that's where they were and that's where they were. And you can see, I mean, me standing here in a room just talking about it doesn't show you the real brilliance of what he did. And if you see it for yourself, then you can, it's really quite uh, astonishing. And in territory that even till today is still like, like, for example, this, this, the, the battle of, um, uh, the battle of, uh, of uh, Emmaus. I mean, you know where that was fought near? That was fought near Latrun. Right. So in 1948, when the Israelis were trying to capture Jerusalem, one of the most famous battles from the War of Independence is the Battle for Latrun. So exactly the same places that were fought and they're using the same tactics. The Haganah that was standing on the hills overlooking Shah Haggai right, in 1948 were standing on the same places that Yehuda Maccabi was looking at, uh, at, the, at the Seleucid phalanxes that were coming through. So these are seriously, seriously important and fundamental revolutions that he made in the mode of fighting and in basically inventing the concept of guerrilla warfare. And uh, it's <coughs> extremely, extremely important uh, material and we should be very proud of it, as we of course are on Hanukkah. We are proud of our contributions to that. What so, the well... Well, Hanukkah, the word Hanukkah, uh, without getting too mystical about it, but the word Hanukkah means, uh, it's generally translated as dedication. It's the rededication of the temple. When they went in there and they re-cleansed it, it's Hanukkah. There's also, also nice, some nice plays on that word. Um, it's composed of Hanu, Chafhei. They rested on the 25th, the 25th of Kislev. There's some nice kind of things going on there, but the word Hanukkah means it also, this also, and of course, standing in this august institution and um, looking at Rabbi Groner, I'm realizing he's probably thinking, oh, you know, so the Rebbe used to always talk, also talked, and others sages have talked about the fact that, of course, Hanukkah is related, is exactly the same letters related to the word Chinuch, meaning education. So together with rededication and education, uh, but, but effectively, that's what it means. Hanukkah Bayit is the dedication of, uh, of the temple. And in a way, they saw Judaism almost starting again. They wrote, that, look, the Hasmoneans, you know, they, they, they did a good PR job, but some of them were a little bit out there. And they started taking themselves a bit seriously. I mean, they were starting to write to other communities saying, you should be observing Sukkot, the eight-day festival of Sukkot in Kislev, because that's how important the Hasmoneans are. And um, 
there's other evidence that we have that some of them were taking themselves quite seriously but overall uh, the rabbis came and sorted that out they picked out the good bits and they said right that's what Hanukkah is and this is where we are and so on you'll see that in the next week you'll see in the next century that things got very archi-parchi with with them so we'll see find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.